You're listening to Reach Teach Talk with Nat Dane. Welcome back to another edition of Reach Teach Talk. Today's subject is uh, the subject of health. Mental health, physical health, emotional health. Uh, a lot of what we talk about on this podcast is thanks to close relationships, the connection between relationships and health and wellness and how you can't go it alone. You need your tribe. You need your people. You need your teachers to believe in you, you to feel that sense of belief from your teachers in the classroom and in the classroom of life. Wherever you work, one's mental health, one's emotional health are intertwined um, and also with the physical health. And we've talked a lot about how learning is cognitive and emotional and very social. And we've talked in previous episodes as well about the loneliness epidemic and how we're trying to fight this medically defined term loneliness now and loneliness being this this the effect of disconnect on one's emotions and one's stress levels and one's mental health anxiety depression all of that um, is interesting because yesterday I ran a retreat for teachers um, a day-long retreat where the focus was on rebooting uh, it was the middle of the year all right right now we're recording late January it's the mid-year of the school year the midpoint and this is a time where there's just a dip right like the beginning of school everything's great um, but then by now you've taken the first set of grades the for your first holiday vacation and you come back to school it's January it's dark and the bloom is off the rose right like you're facing your students and you're like oh god okay I love you guys but I know you guys now and um, we've got some work to do uh, at the same time your own kind of uh, teach as a teacher your own um, well uh, wellness your own energy levels may be draining a bit you may be feeling a sense of fatigue a feeling feeling a sense of mundanity um, and so you're looking for maybe some hope some light and you're anticipating the second half of the year at the end all of this to do with this retreat that I had yesterday that was focused on rebooting. And what does it mean to reboot? What does it mean to spark up again, to relight the fires, to feel integrated once again with yourself? A lot of what we talked about yesterday was about authenticity, about how the way you present yourself to your class or to your team, to your organization, to your family, to your friends, all of these self-presentations have only been enhanced Right in this day and age, through social media, through other lenses uh, to, of technology, um, podcasts, notwithstanding, uh, or included, actually, um, how you present yourself. And we have a generation growing up today, and this was brought up also in the retreat by these teachers. Many of them were high school, middle school teachers. We have a generation growing up today where external validation is compounded. Um, I remember being in school, and I remember thinking, okay, you know, I hope I look good for you know to impress this person in high school or whatever. Um, But my feedback would really come from my mirror, maybe my friends joshing around with me, you know, saying, nice pants, you know, nice jeans, and that, you know, acid wash really fits, 1987, kind of, you know, time to catch up with the times. It's not white snake all the time. Um, And, and, and knowing that that feedback was coming from people who I knew, or at least people who saw me and communicated that with me, where today it's that feedback is Instagram culture, it's TikTok, it's Snapchat, it's, you know, how you appear, how you look, how funny you are, you know, how you present yourself, has been exponentially, um, built upon itself and and this part of what we're going to talk about today my guests and I is growing up today as an adolescent and how that external validation contributes to mental health emotional health wellness and also contributes to physical health um, for girls yeah but also for boys and we're going to talk about genders and we're going to talk about um, identification and identity as we also talk about one's sense of health, one's sense of connection, um, 
you know, how does my external presentation connect to how I truly am on the inside? Um, one last thing I'll say is uh, that relates to yesterday's retreat with teachers, but also I think we can all benefit from whether we're teachers or not, is there's a master educator named Parker Palmer who wrote a book called The Courage to Teach, uh, which came out about 28 years ago. He has since passed away, but before he passed away, he, he created this institute, um, and he this institute for contemplation, and he also... Um, really introduce this idea of the internal versus the external self and how important it is for teachers but i would apply this to any leader or any anybody in the workforce as well how important it is for them to live an undivided life all right you've got your inside your true kind of your yayas as we would call them um and you've got your you know your 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 sources of pride the the elements of yourself that you might not reveal so much but you know exist in you it's your soulful self and then you've got your external the the self you present uh the the on-stage self versus the backstage self and what parker palmer would always communicate is it's really important to as best as you can to to live both selves to live both selves undivided and uh, he even has this exercise that's based on what's called the mobius strip which is when you take a strip of paper and you can put it together in a circle um, and make a circle with it and you have your external self almost like a wall protecting your internal self like this. But if you take your strip of paper and you twist it and then you connect it together, it's impossible to see where the internal on offstage, behind stage self um, uh, uh, separates from the external onstage self. So all this to kind of wind up the pitch here and to introduce our guest for today on this episode of Reach Teach Talk to really discuss and to take a deep dive conversation into the lives of adolescents today of boys and girls and how this magnification of external presentation contributes to or decontributes to one sense of mental health, one sense of wellness, one sense of physical and emotional health. And I'm thrilled to have today our guest, Una Hansen, who is an educator and parent coach based here in Los Angeles, who I knew, true, you know, true confession or true revelation here, um, I knew about 20 years ago we taught at the same school. Una was a high school teacher at the upper school, English teacher, and I was in the middle school teaching at this school. And then since then, um, Una has moved from teaching to launching her own tutoring company, and she's then gone from working with the classroom to working one-on-one with uh, high school with teenagers, and then also now has launched her career, relaunched her career as a parent coach, unahanson.com, O-O-N-A. Hanson, H-A-N-S-O-N.com is her website, and I absolutely encourage you to check it out, whether you're an educator or a parent, both. Um, she, Una, it provides incredible wisdom and has and will share some of this wisdom we'll be fortunate to have on this episode today about adolescent growth and what, what it means to be truly healthy. So, Una, thank you for being here today. Thank you so much. It's exciting to be here. It's wonderful to have you here. And I guess my first question is just how do you define health? It's a really good question. I think, you know, the traditional definition was sort of, you know, the absence of disease, um, but also the presence of well, you know, well-being. Um, but I think our culture's ideas about health can be a little confusing and counterproductive. Um, there's sort of this wellness culture thing happening, especially in America, um, where the picture of wellness is, in general, kind of white, affluent, thin. Uh, cisgender, um, able-bodied, 
And it's a very narrow definition or picture of health. And for all of us, health comes and goes. It's sort of a relative or contextual or sort of temporary state of being that, you know, throughout the lifespan, we experience different kinds of health or different levels of health. But there's this sort of mythic ideal that if you sort of, if you follow the right, you know, celery juice (laughs) detox and you do the right amount of cardio and you get the right macros uh, and you, you know, do the right, you know, all the right things, so-called, that you're sort of guaranteed an outcome. And I think that can actually be really counterproductive for kids and parents and educators because uh, it's just a myth and it's, you know, it sells a lot of products. It's a, you know, there's a reason why the wellness industry is a multi-billion dollar industry. And part of it is that we all do want to seek health. We all want to feel better. And, you know, this industry tells us that if you don't feel good all the time, you're kind of doing it wrong or you're doing something wrong. And, you know, we know psychology has known for decades that human beings just aren't supposed to feel good all the time. And Lisa Damore, um, PhD, talks a lot about this in her new book, Under Pressure, about how we've been kind of sold this idea that we should just feel awesome and always be pursuing some picture of health at all times. And it actually can be detrimental to your health to, to be kind of seeking and striving for something that may be totally unattainable. And better to sort of sit with the sort of full range of human experience and know that, you know, our connection to other people really is the way to feel better. You're not going to feel good all the time, but the way to feel better. Um, And you're probably going to have better mental and physical health as well through that connection rather than the sort of independent striving for some kind of perfection. Wow, this, wow, this, that's awesome. Um, the, the, this idea of health and happiness, um, you said earlier that it's impossible to be, to be happy all the time, but what is the goal then? If you can't be happy all the time, then what is the, the feeling we should be aspiring for if there's such a thing as a should? <laughs> yeah, I think, you know, especially for, you know, kids and parents, again, I keep saying kids, parents, and educators, yeah. I think it's that idea of authenticity, of really sort of feeling your feelings, really being aware of what you're feeling, as you were saying in the introduction, really having your outside be connected to your inside, that you're not always putting on the brave face and you're able to identify your your feelings and really feel them and maybe express them. It doesn't have to be, you know, out loud to someone. It could be in a, a diary. It could be talking to your dog or your cat. Um, it can be in a private space. It doesn't have to be, you know, publicly announced on Instagram every time. Because um, I don't know that that's necessarily the healthiest thing. Um, but that idea of just being aware, being connected to your your actual feelings. That's wonderful. I want to get to Instagram and technology in a moment. But before that, I, I, I was I was reminded in, in what you just shared about this, the expression of stiff upper lip. And um, I've, I've lived in London for a while. And, you know, that whole stiff upper lip, keep calm and carry on. Um, is being challenged actually in the UK in the past few years has been a massive effort toward toward educating um, about everybody about how important it is to do exactly what you just shared as important to not just keep everything inside but to talk about it to share with others to connect with others when you're not feeling great when you're not having an Instagram moment um, which is basically our lives (laughs) right Um, a true authentic connection with somebody else uh, an ability to release so I'd love for you to, to speak a bit about that as well, not about the UK necessarily, but um, what does it do when somebody, what, what, what does it do to somebody when they are advised and they, and, and they do share um, maybe, maybe just concerns or worries or, or parts of their, I guess you'd call it a shadow side that they, you know, society, stiff upper lip society w- does not recommend 
um, doing? I think from a parent's perspective, I'll start there. I think parents sometimes don't think they can handle their child's distress. And so I think parents need their resources. They need their downtime and their friends and connections to have sort of the the strength or the stamina or the resilience to weather their kids' storms. I see this a lot with parents where a child has a meltdown. And, you know, when they're toddlers, that can be challenging. Um, But there's this cultural sense that, well, that's normal and it's something you can talk about with your friends. Oh, you wouldn't believe the tantrum my three-year-old had last night. When it's your 13-year-old having a 13-year-old version of a tantrum, it can be really frightening. And parents sometimes try to sort of put out the fire rather than sort of the fire burn itself out. And I think when we send the message to kids that we can't handle their distress, they're going to start putting on that stiff upper lip with us and sort of lose touch with that. And I think in terms of gender, we definitely tell boys more than girls that their emotions are not okay. Uh, except for one, anger. Mm. Um, that's the one emotion that our culture tells boys that's okay to, ex- to express. Mm-hmm. Um, and so a lot of boys, you know, bottle up, hold on to, kind of displace some of that emotion, and it'll come out as anger. And, you mm-hmm. know, we know boys get sent to the principal's office more, you know, you know, punching the hole in the wall is sort of like a rite of passage for a lot of adolescent mm-hmm. boys. And parents think, what is going on? My kid is having anger management issues or something mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and really, it's going back to even the you know the toddler years. Uh, the the boy falls down on the playground, and the parents say, "You're okay, you know, man up." <laughs> and uh, you know, it's you have to let boys and girls cry and let their emotions out. And that's something that I know Michael Thompson writes a lot about. You know, when a boy is crying, it's better not to say it's okay to cry because just by saying that, you're kind of acknowledging the cultural message that maybe it's not really okay to cry. Um, so better not to say anything, not even to hand a boy a tissue. I know that's one thing that Michael Thompson says. If you hand a boy a tissue as a teacher or a parent or a counselor, it's sort of this sense of like mop up those tears. I can't handle those. So really get, having teachers and parents, you know, be comfortable with the blubbering or the sort of out of control emotions at times. The ugly cry. The ugly cry. Um, boys and girls, let, let them let it out. And that storm will pass. And I think that also tells kids, oh, I'm safe. I can, I can have these feelings, and then I'm going to f- probably feel better when I've let them out, and someone's really heard me and been there for me. But as parents, it's natural for us to want to make them feel better right away. So we try to rush in. And teachers, too, I think sometimes it's sort of the pat on the shoulder, okay, let's get you to your next class. Um, but really having them feel heard and seen and known and have their feelings acknowledged is actually going to help them process those feelings and in a in a good direction, and help them grow. Yeah. Wow. So many so many points of wisdom here, Una. and I'd like to actually continue on the topic of boys actually for a bit. Um, there's you reminded me of a conversation I had recently with a really excellent uh, psychologist, uh, a family therapist, who was sharing her feelings when it was not an adolescent son, but when her son, who was probably three or four years old in pre-K. Um, had a meltdown, right? And, and it was at a parent picnic with kids. And, um, and this this mom, the mom, who's a psychologist, was embarrassed. And she was embarrassed particularly because she's a psychologist and her kid's having a meltdown and she can't figure out what it is. And so she ran over. She's like, what is wrong? You know, basically, to, you know, kind of what you were just sharing, like, you know, not man up. She, didn't, she wouldn't say that to her young kid, but she she certainly implied, let's clean this up and let's be all proper again. Um, but then she stopped. 
And she reminded herself, she's like, wait, this is about me here. This is my reaction and my embarrassment and my externally taking the external um, imagined judgment from all these other parents who are looking at me, a psychologist, and my kid who's the one who's melting down. And she paused and she's like, what's wrong? You can let it out. She, then she did exactly what you just advised. And that's when he revealed the source of his crying. And it was a, a beautiful reason, actually, why he was crying, completely understandable. And, and actually her connection with her son bonded because she was able to take that curious approach, that in, in, approach of inquiry versus judgment or shame. So maybe you can speak a little more to that, too, about, um, you know, just how to respond when your teenager or your preteen is having emotions that you feel you can't control yourself as a parent. Yeah, it's hard. I mean, how do we break this sort of cycle? You know, if you were raised in a house where you weren't really allowed to express a full range of emotions, you know, how do you then learn to do that for your kids? And it takes time. And I think parents need to be compassionate with themselves. There's no such thing as a perfect parent. Um, There's you know, there isn't always one right way to handle a child's situation, and we can always get a do-over the next day. Um, and actually apologizing to a child, I think, goes a long way toward rebuilding that connection. If you have maybe inadvertently given them the message that their feelings weren't okay, you can always go back in a moment of calm the next day and say, you know, yesterday when you shared what happened at school, you know, I think I, I was nervous or it made it reminded me of something I went through as a kid that was painful and I wasn't thinking clearly. You know, now that I've had some time, I'd love to hear more about what that experience was like for you. I want to hear all about it. And uh, I think so. It, so I think there's always a chance to kind of correct if you have feel like if you do feel like you've um, maybe sent the wrong message uh, in a moment of kind of heightened heightened emotion yourself. I think the the main approach that I tend to advise parents to use is you know. Come at it with come at your child's questions or concerns or tantrums with compassion and curiosity. It's kind of like earnest curiosity, like, oh, really? Tell me more about that. And I think that sometimes feels um, inauthentic to parents if they've never done that before. Maybe they've never had an adult do that right. with them before when they were teenagers or kids. So just really taking a breath pausing. I, I, I like Wendy Mogul's um, acronym, WAIT, why am I talking? <laughs> so taking a deep breath. And I, I think we, you know, as parents, and especially if you're also an educator, it's very tempting. And I'm guilty of this many times, my children can attest. <laughs> um, we tend to want to instruct or correct, you know, if a child is saying things about themselves that aren't true. It's very tempting as a parent to say, no, no, you're wonderful at basketball, or you're a great friend, or you're, what do you mean you're not bad at math? And we, we jump in and want to correct the content, but we've missed kind of the underlying emotion. And we really want to hear about the feeling first. And maybe 20 minutes into the conversation, you might say, is there anything I can do that won't make it worse? This is from Lisa Damore. Um, she has a great sort of multi-step way to handle a child's meltdown where really just listening and acknowledging feelings saying oh that sounds really hard or wow that's frustrating you're not taking sides you're not saying oh yes you're right and the teacher's wrong let's march into the administrator's office tomorrow and make a logic complaint um, you're just acknowledging those those feelings and i think it's actually simpler than it seems and if you have sort of a little script in your mind of just saying 
that sounds really hard or you sound really sad. Starting to give names to some of the feelings, especially for boys, we know they don't always have the vocabulary to name their emotions. So it's important for parents to kind of step in and say, oh, I'm wondering, I'm curious. I'm curious if you're feeling disappointed or I'm curious if you're feeling left out or I'm curious if you're feeling misunderstood by your teacher and then stop talking for a while. Let them keep going. Wait, (laughs) why am I talking? I love that so much because that combined with this focus on curiosity and and inquiry really helps to reframe our approach to a difficult emotion-driven interaction between parent and child, and I would say also between teacher and child. This, This finding power in the pause, this taking a breath, this, um, you know, reflect before you respond, but giving the child a chance to speak or to even find his or her own words for their feelings is a shared act of discovery. It, it, it kind of changes the game a little bit. It, it kind of changes to from, from, whoa, I need to put out this fire with my adult fire hose to I'm curious about the source of this this storm. Let's try to find the eye of the hurricane together. Right? I love that. So I'm thinking about the the earlier what you were saying about anger and boys and boys having a more limited vocabulary. Can you speak a little more about that? Yeah, I think boys you know, have the same, this is, this is going to sound shocking to some people, boys have the same emotional needs as girls. So boys have a rich inner life. And this is not something that our culture tells parents and educators. You know, a lot of parents are told, oh, you have a boy, they're going to be so easy. And, um, you know, there's a lot of cultural messages, even from birth, that parents get about what to expect when they have a boy. But boys have a rich inner life. And they have the same emotional needs as girls. In fact, some research, research shows that infant boys actually are, have more emotion than infant girls. So um, I think it's really important for parents to help develop boys' emotional literacy. So, you know, you can even Google, you know, there's some great handouts out there from different educators and psychologists of just names of emotions, different feelings. And I've suggested parents tack it up on the fridge and it's it's helpful to give boys different words for different kinds of feelings because we think about that that empathy gap that we've seen some boys have and part of it is that they have a hard time naming and recognizing their own emotions so we wonder well why aren't they recognizing the you know emotion of their classmate or their girlfriend or their friend well, if they, if they can't recognize and name their own emotions, it's really hard for them to recognize the emotions of others. So it helps the boys in our life. It helps the boys' emotional and physical health. And it can have a sort of a community effect of, of helping the, boy, the people the boys interact with as well. This, yeah, I'm reminded of just the feeling. You know, you know that feeling. We're both English teachers. And we both love literature. And, but when you have a word that just you hadn't heard before, but it's the perfect word that sums up. And sometimes, many times for me now, it's like in a different language, like whether it's like German or Mandarin or something that that's the word for, you know, when you, when you, when you're, that's the word for when you're trying to 
trying to get the automatic water faucet to work and it doesn't work. <laughs> and there's this feeling of it's frustration as well as despair. <laughs> What's the combination <laughs> word? And it's usually not found in the English language, but it'd be found like in, you know, as I said, in, the, in a different in a different language. But there's that feeling of, oh, now, and then once you learn that word, you start using it all the time and you start integrating it into, and you feel almost, the feeling is, to your point, a sense of groundedness actually. Um, that there is a word for this. So it, having a word to define how this feeling is specifically authenticates that feeling, and then you can externalize it. So much of this conversation actually is about the importance of getting, of externalizing the internal, right? Um, of, of unlocking that stiff upper lip and authentically sharing what you truly feel, which gets me now to the topic of external validation. What do you see in terms of with boys, with girls? Is there a difference? Is there, you know, what what is the effect of social media today on external validation and mental health as a result, do you think, for adolescents? It's a great question. I want to start by saying I think it's very tempting for every generation to blame the technology being used by the younger generation on all the problems that they see. So it's very tempting to blame the phone or the Xbox um, but, you know, if you look back to when, you know, Gen X, when you and I were kids, it was, oh, you know, MTV or any TV in general that we were spending way too much time in front of the TV. For our grandparents' generation, it was the radio. Um, you don't have to go too far back even when, when books were more mass produced. There was hysteria that the younger generation <laughs> was spending too much time reading books and this was going to ruin, especially boys, this was going to ruin their masculinity because they would just be sort of in their rooms reading books. So it's, it's a common pattern that we see where we're anxious about adolescents because they're growing up in a different world and we want to blame the technology. I think I'm going to take another step back and say I think as parents, we go through a grieving process during adolescence, uh, during our kids' adolescence, because they're not our little boy or girl anymore. They want mm -hmm. all this independence mm -hmm. and they are supposed to push back. They, they're not supposed to want to spend every waking minute with us. Mm -hmm. They're not supposed to tell us every secret. And it can be very painful to parents. And so sometimes parents try to hold on even tighter. And <laughs> this is going to create problems. And I think the social media aspect, now that's an easy thing for parents to latch on to and say, oh, they're spending all this time on Instagram. Well, they're supposed to be spending time doing things other than hanging out with mom and dad or mom and mom or dad and dad or grandma or whoever the caregivers are. They're supposed to be asserting their independence, spending a lot more time with peers. And today's kids can spend time with peers on social media. They don't have the free-range childhood that a lot of us had where we could just walk out the front door and go find a group of kids and play some pickup basketball or just, I don't know, hang out with skateboards somewhere. I mean, it's really hard for kids in most communities to, to have the freedom and even the time. So even if they live in an area that is considered safe enough to do that, where you're not going to be judged by the parents in your neighborhood, those kids probably don't have a lot of free time. They're kind of programmed and do a lot of activities. So back to social media. I think it's not the device. It's not the social media per se. It's obviously the behaviors that we need to keep an eye on. And it is true that kids are having increased body image concerns, and they are linking this to social media. So there are some studies that are showing kids are very attuned to the images that they're seeing. 
we used to think of body image and beauty standards as applying primarily to girls, but we're seeing a lot of boys. Um, well, let's explore that, please. Yeah, you know, this sort of hyper-muscularity of a lot of um, celebrities and other, you know, male models and male athletes who are now, they're so, you know, athletes are celebrities in a way they never were before. Um, and you're seeing, you know, so many probably photoshopped images of male bodies. Obviously, this also comes into play with pornography that kids have a lot of access to. And there's this unrealistic view of what a male body should look like. And they're showing that more boys want to just get bigger and bigger and bigger. And this is leading to disordered eating, to an unhealthy use of you know supplements, not just you know the steroids of you know yesteryear, but there's so many products out there that claim to build muscle that aren't necessarily the best thing for your child to be using. Um, and then boys just feeling feeling bad about themselves. Um, and so you know there's a lot of pressure on eating a certain way, to look a certain way, and it's. It's just so unrealistic, and a lot of boys feel like if they are self-conscious about their body that maybe they shouldn't be, so it comes back to that, sort of those gender um, assumptions from a few decades ago that this is not something boys, you know, boys shouldn't be worried about how they look, but of course they are, and, and more so than ever now because of social media. And because of that seeking external validation for their physical selves, they are harming themselves. Some are harming themselves because they're going to a distance that is just unhealthy, right? I'd like to move into now physical health, nutritional health, foods that are healthy for growing up health, you know, in, in, a, in, a, in a clean way, for lack of a better word. Um, and this idea of diet um, and, and food and one's relationship with food, right? This podcast is all about relationships with ourselves, with others, but let's actually talk about our relationship with food and how adolescents today are growing up facing a relationship with food, um, boys, girls, uh, and and how maybe that's changed or not um, in the past few uh, decades. Right, it's a it's a really big hot topic right now in the in the culture. I think the concept of diet culture, which is something we're all swimming in, uh, it can be it's an unfamiliar term to some people because often what's taken for granted in a culture is sort of invisible when you're in it until you're aware of it. So, you know, when you do have a chance, if you have the opportunity to go abroad, you experience another culture, you have all these questions like, why do you do it this way? What, What is this about? And the people who've been born and raised in that culture won't even be aware that it's a thing, right? It just feels natural. So that's part of the, the challenge of recognizing diet culture is it can feel natural or innate like, of course, we should always want to be dieting or eating so-called healthy or clean. Or, of course, we should have to burn off our you know, Thanksgiving dinner with a turkey trot in the morning. Um, these thoughts start to feel normal, and they're reinforced by media everywhere. And even in the doctor's office, it can get reinforced. Sorry, so, how, how in the doctor's office? Well, you know, doctors are um, trained to talk to people about their weight as a measure of health. And we know, we've known for a long time that BMI is not a good measure of health. It was never designed to be a measure of individual health. 
Um, but it is an easy number. You know, it's like this this concrete number that people kind of latch onto. And and doctors are, you know, they're often beholden to you know insurance reimbursements and how things are coded, and they have to order a certain lab. To, you know, it's it's a complicated system. And doctors are obviously always doing the best for their patients. And they're they're kind of stuck, I think, in a way because they're they're being pulled in so many directions. So kids are, you know, we know we just talked about kids are worried about how their body looks to the outside world. And that's, you know, that's part of adolescence. I mean, I, through, you know, millennia, it's an age where you do become aware of how you look to other people. It's, it's evolutionary, right? And that, that's, that self-consciousness is part of our, like, DNA in those years. You're going to be more self-conscious. I'm not going to say it's completely generated by media. But what's happened in recent years is sort of the dieting industry has kind of gone underground. I think we're all aware, we've known since the 50s that diets don't work in the sense that, you know, 95% of people who change their diet and exercise for intentional weight loss will gain it back, and two-thirds of those people will gain even more weight back. And people talk about the failure rate of diets. And I actually like to think of it as rather than the diets failing, it's your body succeeding at keeping you alive. So, you know, we have our biology is built to keep us at a certain predetermined, you know, generally a predetermined size for what's right for our body. But we've come to a place where we kind of want everyone to be sort of in a pretty narrow range of body size or body type. And that's where the problems come. So, um, because diets have kind of kind of gotten a bad bad name, now it's kind of gone underground as wellness. So I'll give you the perfect example. So the famous diet company Weight Watchers has rebranded as WW, and they call it Wellness That Works. But wellness, if you look at their website and all their marketing materials, it's before and after photos of someone losing a pretty large amount of weight in a pretty short period of time. Um, they don't show you the photo of them five years later, <laughs> exactly. um, but you know. That. So, the, to me, the rebranding of Weight Watchers is the perfect example of the way that dieting has gone underground as wellness, and even the concept of healthy eating and clean eating. This is all part of this diet culture, this wellness culture that says you know certain foods are better than others. So, one of the hallmarks of diet culture, obviously, is you know the idealization of thinness. Um, but the other is the elevation of certain foods and the demonization of other foods. And this is really confusing for kids because they get the message often at school, in the media, at home, that some of the foods they want or the amounts they want, maybe something's wrong with that. So going back to that idea of external versus internal, when a kid is hungry for something and they get the message that they can't have it or they shouldn't have it, it creates this disconnect. You know, can I trust my hunger? Can I trust my body? And I think that, you know, has a whole host of problems that can come with it if kids kind of lose connection with what their body is really telling them. Like there's body wisdom, right? Mm -hmm. It's not, you can't find out, you know, no one else can know what your body signals are more than you. So, you know, any kind of protocol or lifestyle change, you know, this is a time of year where most people are kind of like coming off their whole 30 or their dry January or whatever kind of cleanse or detox um, they might be doing. And, um, you know, it's a it's an interesting time to be talking about all this because this is sort of the classic moment when people realize, like, it's not really sustainable to restrict myself in certain ways. And um, for kids, you know, I want to, going back to the boys and girls thing, 
I think our culture thinks of disordered eating or eating disorders as affecting, you know, again, the stereotypical, the thin, white, affluent, highly high-achieving girl. Um, but eating disorders do not discriminate. They affect people of all races, all genders, um, across the socioeconomic um, levels, and in body sizes. So, you know, we think of, you know, the emaciated teenage girl is sort of what we think of in our mind when we hear the words eating disorder. But it can happen to anyone. And boys are getting diagnosed at much higher rates. And they're looking at things like social media and this sort of fitness, intense fitness pressure on boys to be super buff and super amazing athletes. And you should always be sort of training and kind of perfecting your body um, as contributing to some of these these higher rates of diagnoses. Yeah. And, and so you mentioned the BMI as not a, not an accurate measurement of health, uh, certainly. And and you also, I found a lot of hope in what you're sharing about the the range of body, healthy body types being reflective of the individuality in us all, right? And is there a measurement or is there like what 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 does accurately measure then one's health? Is there a measurement that works? That's a great question. I think in a doctor's office, they do have a lot of tools, you know, whether it's blood pressure, heart rate, you know, there are a lot of other ways we can gauge sort of physical health. And, um, you know, pediatricians are more and more being asked to, to talk to their patients about mental health. They're not necessarily getting a lot of support for that in terms of training and time and reimbursement. So, you know, they keep being asked to do more and more in those very short appointments. Um, but, yeah, that's a good question. I don't know that we have. There's nothing that's going to be as simple as a number like BMI, right? It's just not, you know, human beings are dynamic living organisms, and there's never going to be kind of one quick, um, quick number we can point to to assess health. But I think in terms of nutrition and, and exercise, it's really about the relationship to food. And um, and in, in terms of family dynamics, you know, connecting over food at the dinner table is so important. We know that, you know, for mental and physical health, for academic achievement, I mean, a lot of things we really care about, we can look to peaceful family dinners as a, a way to support those healthier outcomes. And it's not about what you're eating. This could be takeout. This could be frozen pizza. I think there's a lot of pressure on parents to, you know, create these sort of Pinterest-worthy, you know, we look at social media pressures on parents, um, these sort of Pinterest-worthy, you know, beautiful dinners that were made from, you know, like, you know, the farmer where you got the chicken and, you know, it's, it kind of. You knew the chicken. You named the chicken. Yeah, maybe you you named the (laughs) chicken. Uh, Maybe you picked the carrots from your backyard. I mean, that's great for people for whom that, you know, that's part of their life and that's joyful. When it's coming from that place of should or that place of fear, um, you know, we want to have joyful family meals. I mean, connecting over food is built into our DNA. Um, and celebrations around food, you know, I think, you know, someone was saying, you know, I, uh, nobody eats a cupcake because they're hungry. You know, a cupcake is joyful and celebration. Um, but I've been to so many children's birthday parties where, you know, the child's reaching for the cupcake. And it's as often at the dad as the mom saying, don't eat that. That has food dye. That has too much sugar. Um, kind of sending the message that what the child wants isn't okay. And 
the parent is doing the best they can. They think they're they're protecting their child's health uh, because they've been told that sugar is the devil or toxic or addictive or you know whatever the kind of pseudoscience um, is telling people. And I think you know m- you know let the child have the cupcake. You know, assuming there's no allergy. You know, I'm not talking about you know serious food allergies. But kind of being able to connect and celebrate around food is really, really important. And to separate food from kind of body size, you know, that we've got to break. That's a diet culture thing that, like, what you eat determines your body size. Because we actually know, you know, you could take 100 people and give them the exact same uh, diet and fitness routine, and people are still going to be all different sizes. Absolutely. Genetics. I mean, right? I mean, right there, metabolism. Um, I love this concept of the dinner table and this concept of, of food being the catalyst for connectivity and dopamine and receptors, uh, dopamine receptors activated. We are social creatures and you know this whole podcast is about the importance of relationships through healthy connection and healthy bonding that comes. You know, the brain grows through love and love is exhibited through people. Um, it, you can't receive love in isolation as much as one might love themselves. And narcissist, the narcissist myth is true. You'll drown in self-love and you'll also wither away in isolation. This is all about connectivity. And the idea of food being the catalyst for, for connectivity is, reminds me of with, with, you know, in the classroom, the content is there to serve the learning. The content is the food. The content is the reason for the raison d'etre. The reason for being is a content, but the learning is is a corollary to the content and the the connection is a corollary to the food. So I just wanted to make that analogy. Couldn't agree more. I mean, the relationship between the teacher and the student has to come first. You yeah. can be the most amazing content expert in the world on your subject matter, but if you don't connect with your students, you know, they're not going to learn as well from you. And, you know, that idea of sort of that, um, that kind of triad or you have the, the content, um, and the teacher and the student and all those three need to be connected for there to be um, really powerful learning. And that goes for parents as well. We really have to put the relationship first, um, staying connected to our kids. Even as they push us away, we can find ways. You know, you can make family dinner sacred. Um, and it may not be every night. I think that's the thing parents sometimes feel like, oh, I'm not getting this right. There's a lot of parent shaming out there. <laughs> a lot of books are sold telling, especially American parents, like, they're doing it better in France, or here's how, you know. Um, bring your baby. Yeah, I mean, and, you know, there's a lot to be learned from those books. And sure. Um, but I think it's part of a cultural message to parents that they're somehow always getting it wrong. Yes. And that doesn't help anybody. It's just like with students. If they're always feeling criticized, um, you know, they – aren't necessarily going to, you know, learn learn better. Like, shame doesn't motivate people. We think it does. Um, I love the the special ed teacher, um, Rick Lavoie, talking about boys. You know, he says, people always say, oh, if actually, you know what? Michael Thompson might echo this as well. So I might be combining two quotes. So I apologize. Two, well, two great educators. Two great educators. So, um, but the idea that, you know, a lot of parents of boys will say, gosh, if only, you know, if only he'd try harder, he'd do better. Um, but there's another way to look at it. You could say, if only he'd do better, he'd try harder. You know, this idea of, you know, if if people feel like they're failing and being criticized, it's very unmotivating for most people. And so I think I want to tell parents that they're, you know, it's it's not it's not so overwhelming and impossible. It's the it's I mean, we've made it out to be very complicated, whether it's, you know, putting together the perfect dinner or that you have to, you know, 
I don't know, get certain kind of balanced meals on the table every night. It has to be homemade from scratch. Um, you know, we can keep it simple and just being together. And really, the takeout pizza is fine. Yes. All of this, I'm thinking about this phrase that Robin Berman, who's a psychologist, psychiatrist here in, 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 in L.A. and just amazing herself, um, uses this expression, before you correct, connect. And I just love that because what we're talking about, this entire conversation truly is about the importance of connecting with your child, with your students, um, and then you can correct them and, and correct in a very nuanced definition of correct, right? Just nudge them toward perhaps a different way of, of, of viewing themselves or viewing a situation or you know it's an emotional meltdown or an anger manifestation storm. Don't make sure you've connected Make sure you've connected before you try to correct. And anyhow, I just think that that's such a perfect kind of way to wrap up this conversation about health is the idea that um, with, with balanced health comes a broader approach or a broader perspective. In order to have a broader perspective, whether it's on one's body type, whether it's on one's mental health, whether it's on uh, your, your child's um, you know, anxiety or whatnot, to have a broader perspective requires taking a step back, taking a breath, and assessing and surveying from a broader lens, correct? Totally agree. And um, anyhow, I'm just thrilled to have had you on this episode. And, uh, is there anything that you want to share that we haven't covered today um, about health, wellness in boys and girls and adolescents? Wow, I guess... Um Boy, that's a big, I should have thought of like what my final point should be. Um, <laughs> You've made so many points. There's no final. It's okay. um, I guess, you know, just like I don't have the answer right now. Like it's okay to not always have the answer. You know, um, parents can make mistakes. You know, we can model for our kids that, you know, mistakes are human. We're human. And, you know, there isn't always one right answer to every question or problem. And, but just staying curious and connected it's going to really go a long way toward healthy outcomes for parents and kids. Fabulous. Fabulous concluding statement. Una Hansen, amazing educator, parent coach, unahansen.com. Check out her website. She's here in L.A. And just thank you so much for being on the show today. My pleasure. Wonderful. You've been listening to Reach, Teach, Talk with Nat Damon. If you'd like to recommend a guest for a future episode, you can send your suggestion or questions to net at reachacademics.com.